Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Jeremy Kress, Assistant Professor of Business Law at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, and Matthew Turk, Assistant Professor of Business Law and Ethics at Indiana University Kelly School of Business. We'll be discussing their new paper, Too Many to Fail, Against Community Bank Deregulation, which I'll link to in the show notes for today's episode. Jeremy, Matt, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having us, Andrew. Great to be here. Thank you, Andrew. Jeremy, Matt, your paper is focused on this problem that you identify related to community banks, the too many to fail problem. Could you introduce for our listeners what that problem is and what are some of the economic theories that might undergird it? Yeah, this is Matt and I I can take this one. So too many to fail is kind of a, a pun on too big to fail. And the main idea is that when a lot of small banks fail at the same time, it can often replicate the problems that are associated with large financial institutions failing. So, for example, you see the problem of systemic risk in the small banking sector repeating itself. If a few small banks fail, you can get sort of an information contagion effect where there's a run on the system as a whole. Or um, another way this can work is a lot of smaller banks have less diversified asset portfolios. So if there's a common macroeconomic shock to um, housing or some other industry, this can cause a, a lot of small banks to fail at the same time. Um, you also see the problem repeating in terms of the regulatory response. So there can be uh, what's known as regulatory forbearance, where the banking supervisors see that small banks are starting to fail, but hesitate to intervene, sort of an overabundance of caution. And when that happens, you can also see sort of the bailout problem associated with big banks repeating, where once it's too late and it's clear that a lot of small banks have begun to fail, the solution from the supervisors is just to throw sort of a wall of money at the problem in a way that might be overbroad. The last parallel would be that there's, there can also be macroeconomic spillovers or spillovers from a small banking crisis to the general economy. Once a bunch of small banks fail, this cuts off lending channels to entrepreneurs and small businesses in a way that can, can hurt the economy overall. So listeners all remember, or they, they mostly remember, the 2008 crisis, uh, the banking crisis. And you note that during that time, hundreds of banks failed, which we might have some memory of. And of course, we know back in the Great Depression, a lot of banks failed. We've all seen It's a Wonderful Life, or, or the news clips or read a little bit about it. Uh, my question would be, was that a unique experience in American history? Or have we seen similar periods uh, apart from the Great Recession and the Great Depression when uh, a lot of small banks have failed all at once? This is Megan. I, I think one thing the paper tries to do is take a broader historical perspective. And when you do that, you notice the main pattern is that U.S. banking crises have been small banking crises. So everyone knows the Great Depression, but if you turn back the clock a little bit to the 19th century, the U.S. banking system was very fragmented, decentralized. Almost every bank was extremely small, and you had repeated bank panics and runs on the system during the 19th century, early 20th century. And even as recent as the 1980s, there was the savings and loan crisis, which was almost which was exclusively concentrated on smaller financial institutions. 
So if you really zoom out to the historical perspective, one thing we try to emphasize is that pretty much every banking crisis in U.S. history has involved small banks, and that includes the 2008 crisis. The 2008 crisis is mainly an outlier because it's the first U.S. banking crisis that was predominantly centered on larger institutions. So the historic norm is basically too many to fail rather than too big to fail, or so we argue. You identify in the paper a set of assumptions or beliefs about community banking that uh, you identify as the myths of community banking. Can you maybe discuss what some of those myths are, how they contribute to systemic risk, and how regulations have responded to some of those myths or adapted to some of those myths? And can you maybe walk listeners through what they are and, and why the assumptions might be off? Sure. This is Jeremy. So I think that the first point to emphasize here is that community banks are extraordinarily politically powerful, right? Every member of Congress has one or more community banks in his or her district. The leaders of those community banks tend to be very well connected and influential. So community banks, as a result, tend to be viewed very favorably within policymaking circles. And even more than that, community banks are sympathetic figures. They're rooted in their local communities. They sponsor your kid's t-ball team. uh, And their traditional mortgage and commercial lending business seems far removed from Wall Street's financial engineering that caused the the 2008 crisis. So it's because of this perception and because of community banks' political power, uh, there are three myths about community banks that have really gained near universal acceptance. Uh, And so part of what Matt and I do in this paper is to contend that these myths, despite their universal acceptance, actually aren't true. Uh, So let me identify those myths and and talk about why they're false. First myth about community banks is that community banks don't contribute to systemic risk. There's a perception that we don't really need to worry about small bank risk-taking. They're small, right? Community banks have $500 million in assets, maybe a billion dollar in assets. So how could they cause systemic problems? We don't need to worry about them. But as Matt already said, that's a false assumption, when community banks fail, they tend not to fail in isolation. They tend to fail in mass because they have correlated balance sheets, because they're susceptible to similar funding vulnerabilities. And as Matt says, when community banks fail, as they did in the Great Depression and during the SNL crisis and during other periods in community bank, other periods during U.S. history, that has real serious knock-on effects for the U.S. economy. So you know, myth number one, the idea that community banks don't create systemic risk uh, is not borne out by U.S. history. So the second myth about community banks is that the Dodd-Frank Act and all post-financial crisis regulations have imposed onerous burdens on community banks that threaten the survival of the community bank sector. Right, This, this idea that community banks have been crushed by regulation. Uh, and again, this claim is a misperception. Post-financial crisis rules didn't impose unique regulatory burdens on community banks. In fact, to the extent that Dodd-Frank distinguished between community banks and big banks, it was to shield community banks from excessive regulation. The overwhelming thrust of Dodd-Frank was to regulate the too-big-to-fail banks that were perceived as the primary culprits of the 2008 crisis. 
right? So Congress imposed things like stress tests and liquidity rules and resolution plans and derivatives clearing requirements, a whole slew of rules that were only applicable to the too big to fail banks. But those rules expressly exempted community banks. You know, to be fair, there were a few rules in Dodd-Frank and in Basel III, the new post-crisis capital rules, that did apply to community banks. These are things like risk-based capital requirements and the Volcker Rule, which prohibits banks from engaging in speculative investments. But even for those post-crisis rules that did apply to community banks, policymakers uh, went out of their way to make accommodations to smaller banks to make it very easy for them to comply. Policymakers set easily achievable capital standards for community banks, uh, for example, and they published detailed compliance guides for these rules to lend a helping hand to community banks to to comply with the rules. And it, and it's even more significant than that. Not only did Dodd-Frank not impose significant burdens on community banks, it actually included several meaningful subsidies that helped community banks compete with their larger competitors. Uh, so it's just one example. Dodd-Frank changed the way that the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation assesses deposit insurance fees on banks, shifted the assessment burden from small banks to larger banks. So that shift in the deposit assessment rates operates as a subsidy for smaller banks, really ended up alleviating regulatory burden on community banks. So there's several of these subsidies in Dodd-Frank that we discuss in the paper. We show in the paper that the value of those subsidies in Dodd-Frank to community banks effectively outweighs. It's enough to offset most, if not all, new regulatory burdens that community banks experienced as a result of post-financial crisis regulation. So this idea uh, that community banks have propagated, the idea that Dodd-Frank imposed excessively onerous regulatory burdens on community banks, again, just isn't true. So there's one more myth that community banks have propagated. The myth that community banks can't remain viable without special subsidies or regulatory advantages, that they need deregulation in order to remain competitive. Uh, and here again, the claim is unfounded. Community banks have actually thrived since the financial crisis. The data suggests, in fact, that community banks are doing even better than the too big to fail banks by some financial measures. You, you hear this claim, community banks say we're struggling, and they point to data showing that the number of community banks has declined uh, in recent years. But that's really the wrong way to look at it, because the number of community banks has been going down uh, for quite some time. We used to have rules in the United States prohibiting interstate banking. When those rules were repealed in the late 1980s and mid-1990s, ever since then, the number of community banks has been going down. So it's not about overregulation. It's a natural consolidation that has happened since banks have been able to engage in interstate banking. In addition, the decline in the number of banks is largely attributable to the lack of new entry, the lack of new community banks that have been formed since the financial crisis. And the lack of de novo entry is really a lot more attributable to macroeconomic conditions, right? really low interest rates, rather than uh, to any sort of excessive regulation. So those are the three main myths that community banks have propagated. These myths have become widely accepted not only in policymaking circles, but also 
among academic circles as well. Scholars haven't really focused very heavily on community banks. A lot of the scholarly attention has focused on the too-big-to-fail banks. Uh, But to the extent that legal scholars have written about community banks, they have bought in hook, line, and sinker to all three of those myths, uh, to the idea that community banks need deregulation. Professor Tanya Marsh has written about this. Even Professor Art Wilmarth, who is no friend of the banking industry, Professor Wilmarth has been uniformly critical of the banking industry, but even he has written that community banks should be deregulated for the reasons that community banks cite about overregulation and such. So these are really popular myths that have been accepted not only by policymakers in Washington, but also academics as well. So these myths, as you identify, are are pretty pretty pervasive and and pretty uh, salient for policymakers and other people who are sort of opinion setters. And as you note, Dodd-Frank did increase some requirements for community banks. It also offset some of those requirements through regulatory subsidies. In 2018, though, we saw kind of a groundswell uh, politically, as much as there can be a groundswell for banking regulation politically, uh, to roll back some of these requirements on small community banks and that culminated in the the fairly wordy Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act of 2018, or the EGGRCPA, as we might also call it. How do the provisions, what did did that act do? And how do the provisions that it has flow from some of the myths that you identify? And what are the problems with the act that you note in the paper? So, right, in March of 2018, Congress passes uh, this awkwardly worded bill that you identified, the EGGRCPA. Some people call it the Crapo bill after Mike Crapo, who is the the chair of the Senate Banking Committee, who shepherded this bill through. Other people just refer to it as S-2155, which was the bill number. So it's a little bit easier to say. S-2155 really did two things, right? It it was commonly perceived as the Dodd-Frank reform bill, Dodd-Frank rollback bill. The two things it did were, number one, it deregulated mid-sized banks, right? Regional banks like PNC and Capital One. Uh, And it also deregulated community banks, banks generally with less than $10 billion in assets. All of the debate over S-2155 focused on the regional banks, the mid-sized banks, whether it was a good idea to deregulate PNC, Capital One, and their peers. Nobody focused on the deregulation of the community banks. Everybody assumed that deregulating the community banks with less than $10 billion in assets was a good idea. So what Matt and I are arguing in this paper is that That community bank deregulation that really flew under the radar in March of 2018 carries serious underappreciated risks. Uh, So we identify in the paper all the different ways in which S-2155 and the related deregulatory initiatives that followed weaken community bank safeguards. So we discuss four categories of them in the paper. I want to highlight two of the community bank regulatory rollbacks that I think are are most important and could be most dangerous. The first way that S-2155 rolls back community bank regulations is through community bank capital requirements. Traditionally, all U.S. banks have been subject to risk-based capital rules. So under risk-based capital rules, banks that invest in riskier assets like 
mortgage-backed securities have to maintain a bigger equity cushion than banks that invest in safer assets like treasury bonds. But under S2155, this new rule says that a community bank with less than $10 billion in assets is exempt from all risk-based capital requirements if it maintains a simple leverage ratio of between 8 and 10%. The regulators have since set the community bank leverage ratio requirement at 9%, so right in the middle of the, the statutory range. So Congress has effectively eliminated risk-based capital requirements for community banks. And Matt and I are concerned that this elimination of risk-based capital requirements is going to push new risks onto community bank balance sheets. When they're subject to only a leverage requirement, a community bank's investments are treated identically for regulatory capital purposes, regardless of their underlying risk profile. So in response to this community bank leverage ratio, we think community banks are very likely to increase their riskiness. They're going to shed safe assets like treasuries, and in exchange, they're going to take on more volatile loans and securities in an effort to generate higher returns. So overall, we're going to see a shift in the asset composition that community banks hold toward riskier assets. That's kind of the first way in which S2155 deregulates community banks. The one other reform that I wanted to point out was reduced supervisory oversight. So traditionally, banks have been subject to supervision in the form of annual exams and quarterly financial reports. Under S2155, though, Congress made more banks eligible for an expanded exam cycle. So they're only going to be examined every 18 months as opposed to every 12 months. More banks are also going to be eligible to file short-form financial reports as opposed to the more detailed quarterly reports that uh, other banks have to file. So the idea here is to reduce burden on banks. Supervisory exams, according to the banks, are onerous because they have to get all their documents in order and deal with supervisors uh, poking around on site. The problem with this reform, the problem with extending the exam cycle and reducing the volume of financial reports is that there are numerous academic studies that have shown that less supervisory oversight results in more risk-taking and more bank failures. So there have been several times in the past where policymakers have given a group of banks a break on their supervision, right? Less frequent exams or less fewer financial reports. And invariably, the data show that when you reduce the frequency or intensity of supervision, that leads to more bank risk-taking. Anybody who has kids, of course, knows that when you reduce supervision, those who are supervised engage in more mischief, right? Uh, And that is very much the case in the banking sector. And yet S2155 really alleviates a lot of supervisory oversight that was otherwise in place on the community bank sector. So those are two, I think, of the most important ways in which S2155 deregulates community banks. Uh, There are others as well that we go over in the paper. Uh, And the point that Matt and I make is each one of these reforms individually is going to nudge community banks into a riskier direction. Collectively, the sum total of these reforms is going to have the effect of really shifting 
the risk profile of community banks. They're bad enough individually, but when you put them all together, that's really where we're going to see the effect. So you mentioned the potential for increased risk of, of mischief. And one of the discussions I thought was really interesting in the paper was this idea of regulatory arbitrage that could be practiced by community banks and kind of the resulting effect of regulatory discontinuities. Could you touch on on that idea a little bit? Yeah, this is Matt. I'll, I'll take that one. So for the regulatory arbitrage part of the argument, I mean, to, to recap Jeremy's story, you can think of post-crisis financial regulation as doing two things for small banks. The first round was Dodd-Frank, where small banks were basically ignored and requirements were ratcheted up for large banks. The result of that was to create this sort of two-tiered system where we have heightened vigilance for, for big financial institutions and then keep things about the same for smaller banks. So one immediate problem there was one of the myths that Jeremy pointed out. It was This move was sort of animated by the idea that small banks had nothing to do with the financial crisis or the events of 2008. And so it would be fine to basically keep the regulatory framework for them as is. As it happened, 500 community banks failed uh, in the years after 2008. A total of 900 were considered to have entered a state of financial distress by the FDIC. So the first oddity of the two-tiered system is a premise was that small banks were stable during 2008, but that wasn't the case. Um, the second round of reform, post-crisis reforms came in the 2018 statute, let's call it, or the Dodd-Frank rollback statute. And what that did was exacerbate the two-tier system that was already in place. So while regulations for large banks were ratcheted up under Dodd-Frank, the 2018 statute more or less ratcheted down the existing regulations along a number of dimensions for community banks or smaller financial institutions. So the two-tiered framework that's become increasingly stark over the past 10 years has implications for what's called regulatory arbitrage, which is just a pun on the idea of financial arbitrage when there's two, when an identical asset is priced differently in two different markets, you can make a risk-free profit by buying in one market and selling in the other. And the same thing happens when a set of regulatory rules applies to different prices for the same exact financial activity. So the way that Dodd-Frank and the 2018 statute operate is by dividing financial institutions or deposit-taking banks into different asset sizes. The key cutoffs are for community banks is $10 billion. Another important cutoff at $250 billion in assets. And what happens when you have these regulatory cliffs where $10 billion or $250 billion becomes the magic number is that the financial activity inevitably will drift below the heavily regulated cliff into the uh, lesser regulated sector. So this is the regulatory discontinuity we talk about. If your bank has $11 billion in assets, it's not a community bank and it's treated dramatically different than if it has $9 billion in assets. These statutes, especially in 2018, have just been passed, and so the market response is yet to be seen. But there's already pretty good evidence that financial market participants are wise enough to take advantage of these new rules. So one of the most interesting figures we found was that prior to five or 10 years ago, the number of banks just above $10 billion in assets, so slightly too big to be considered a community bank, and the number of banks just below the $10 billion cutoff, so the largest community banks, there was about the same number of institutions or entities on each side of that cutoff. 
within the past few years that has changed. So now there's a three to one ratio. There's three times as many banks that are slightly smaller than 10 billion. So you can already see financial markets wising up to the regulatory discontinuities or regulatory cliffs in the system and financial activities migrating just below the cliffs. So an $11 billion bank and a $9 billion bank are for most purposes doing the exact same thing, right? But if you structure your uh, bank to get below the cutoff, now you can perform the same financial activities as the $11 billion bank, but with lighter regulation, less supervision and things like that. Um, And so a follow-on consequence to the drift of institutions around these cutoffs is that not only are they bunching just below the regulatory cliff where where heightened uh, requirements kick in, but also risk-taking is bunching below those categories as well. So there is some evidence that there is a study that we cite that shows that if you ran the stress test that now apply to big banks, to community banks, which have been exempted from them. A lot of community banks wouldn't fare so well. With regards to the stress test, like a perennial complaint by the community banks has been that they're just administratively awkward or improperly tailored to their asset portfolios or their specialized line of business. But what these uh, researchers point out is that, or at least they argue, the reason why smaller banks would fail is because they're investing in riskier loans. So you have the dynamic that the basic theory of regulatory arbitrage would predict is that financial activity and risk-taking would migrate into the smaller tiers of the regulatory framework. And that seems to be what is in its early stages, but clearly happening according to the data. So the idea would be the incentives that Dodd-Frank and even more so after 2018 put in place is you want to keep your bank below the $10 billion cutoff to qualify as a community bank. And then once you do so, because your capital requirements and supervisory tension are less, you could now also invest in sort of higher risk business loans. And there's some evidence that relatively high risk business loans are beginning to drift into community banks, which are not necessarily bad in themselves, right? Small businesses taking risks and having and being able to have access to credit, even though they have a high risk profile, that's what uh, entrepreneurship is. But at the same time, you don't want to have a regulatory framework where the banks that cater to those markets can focus exclusively on that higher risk bracket of loans, while banks that are almost the same size, just slightly larger, would be subject to much more regulatory scrutiny for doing the same exact thing. What recommendations would you offer to combat some of the risks that you note in the paper? So up until this point, we've contended that there's been widespread, unjustified deregulation of community banks that's going to push risks into the small bank sector as a result of the regulatory arbitrage dynamic that Matt just went through. We think that there are at least three sets of reforms that policymakers could adopt to to stop unwarranted risk-taking within the community bank sector. Uh, The first reform is straightforward. It would be to repeal the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief Consumer Protection Act, otherwise known as S-2155. A lot of the worrisome provisions that we identify in the paper are straight out of that law. And if Congress were to repeal it, that would help undo a lot of the damage that's been done. Even if Congress doesn't act, though, and and I think it's going to be difficult to get Congress to act because community banks are so sympathetic in Congress, even if Congress act, there are some things that regulators can do to try to safeguard the community bank sector. For example, on the community bank 
leverage ratio. Uh, remember, the statute says the community bank leverage ratio has to be set between 8 and 10%. Regulators have set it right now at 9%. To increase the safety of the community bank sector, uh, regulators could up, could increase the community bank leverage ratio to 10%. Uh, we think that that would be a justified move, given that the leverage ratio is likely to force riskier assets onto community bank balance sheets. So the first set of reforms would be to either repeal S2155 or to have regulators take these steps to better safeguard community banks. A second set of reforms that would alleviate the too-many-to-fail problem has to do with supervision. In some respects, S2155 ties supervisors' hands. It says that supervisors can't go in and examine community banks more frequently than once every 18 months. So it's really going to be important that the agencies target their supervision effectively uh, when they are able to get in and examine these banks. And so Matt and I contend that the regulators and supervisors should target their supervision toward these regulatory cliffs that Matt talked about before. $10 billion is a very salient cutoff. As Matt says, uh, we would expect to see a lot of risks accumulating within the banks that are just under that $10 billion cutoff. So we would recommend that the agencies really target their supervisory efforts toward those banks that are just beneath those salient supervisory cliffs. So the, so the supervisors should look out for regulatory cliff effects. And then the third set of reforms that we would recommend has to do with macro prudential or financial stability monitoring of the community bank sector as a whole. So far, we've been talking largely about microprudential regulation, where we're focusing on the safety and soundness of individual institutions. But uh, going back to some of the economic theories that Matt talked about at the top of the podcast, we contend that community banks pose financial stability risks because they have highly correlated balance sheets, highly correlated funding models, and as a result, they tend to fail in close succession. Uh, so if we were to make recommendations to the regulators or to the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which is the group of, of regulators uh, who are responsible for monitoring financial stability risks on a market-wide basis, we would suggest doing things like community bank sector-wide stress tests to identify whether there are any common vulnerabilities on community bank balance sheets that might pose systemic risks in the future. So three sets of reforms, repeal S2155, target supervision to identify and monitor cliff effects, uh, and then adopt some forms of community bank macroprudential supervision like sector-wide stress tests. Matt, Jeremy, what big picture takeaways would you like listeners to have from the paper and from this conversation? Yeah, this is Matt. So I think one big picture takeaway besides the very close analysis we do in the paper of the nuts and bolts of particular regulations is just to reemphasize the importance of historical memory when it comes to financial regulation, which is an area where it seems to be perennially lacking. So there's the famous Reinhardt and Rogoff book titled This Time is Different. And, and the joke in the title of the book is that when every financial crisis hits, it follows a period in which people believe that everything about the financial system has changed and that there's no lessons to be learned by past crises. And that sort of thinking has led regulation continually astray. 
Um, and so to return to the beginning historical point that we made at that, so this conversation, you know, we try to emphasize that every U.S. banking crisis has involved small banks, including the 2008 crisis. And to move the regulatory framework in a direction that is motivated by assumption that small banks are no longer an issue is sort of falling into this same exact fallacy that the legal system or the legal regulation of banks always falls in. The idea is that there's been a paradigm shift and so the the past banking crises will never happen again. One way this has played out in 2008 was that there is a paper by White and Cole which argues that the best predictor of small bank failures among the 500 community banks that failed in 2008 were that they had similar balance sheets in terms of the loans they specialized in as banks that failed in the 1980s savings and loan crisis. And so once you see 2008 and the the subsequent decade of regulation from the perspective of that broader historical lens, um, at least we try to argue that the one danger here with setting up this two-tiered system where small banks are neglected or given free reign and big banks are clamped down on is that it forgets these lessons from even the past decade, but certainly recent decades of financial history in the United States. And I agree with everything uh, Matt just said there. I I think in terms of big picture takeaways, one point I would add, we advocate for the re-regulation of community banks in, in ways that I specified. I want to emphasize that neither Matt nor I is trying to kill the community bank sector with over-regulation, right? That's not our goal here. We think that community banks play a really important role in the U.S. economy. Community banks engage in what's called relationship lending, right? Bigger banks tend to use very mathematical underwriting processes. They just look at the numbers and they approve or deny a loan based on the numbers. Community banks can do something different because they're rooted in their communities. They know more about local market conditions. They know about personalities of the people who are looking to borrow. So they're able to be more innovative in their underwriting criteria. That's really important for entrepreneurs and small businesses and local homeowners. So that relationship lending that community banks do is super valuable to the U.S. economy. We're not trying to regulate that out of existence. What we are trying to do, however, is to make sure that community banks are safe and sound for the long term. We don't want community banks to engage in overly risky behavior such that they fail in mass and make relationship lending go away because there's no more community banks left to do it. So what we're trying to do is to regulate community banks appropriately to ensure that they're viable in the long term to maintain that relationship lending function that is so critical to a lot of communities and small businesses. The goal isn't to over-regulate. The goal is to appropriately regulate. Our guests today have been Jeremy Kress, Assistant Professor of Business Law at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, and Matthew Turk, Assistant Professor of Business Law and Ethics at Indiana University Kelly School of Business. We've discussed their new paper, Too Many to Fail, Against Community Bank Deregulation, which I'll add a link to in the show notes for today's episode. Jeremy, Matt, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having us, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.